This is The Guardian. Just a warning before we get started. This episode contains references to suicide, so please take care while listening. If you need any help or support, please call Lifeline on 13 11 14. It's available 24 hours a day. I'm Jane Lee, coming to you from Wurundjeri Land, and this is The Full Story. The RoboDebt scheme unlawfully collected debts from more than 400,000 welfare recipients, which they didn't owe. It was just such a, a weight on my shoulders, but I do remember driving home at night just beside myself with worry about this money and thinking I could just drive my car into a tree and make it stop. The federal government was eventually forced to repay or wipe almost $2 billion in debts in order to settle a class action lawsuit over the scheme. Now, a royal commission will report what went wrong in June, having uncovered a litany of warnings about robo-debt which were ignored for years. Today... Guardian Australia's social affairs and inequality editor Luke Henriquez-Gomes on how the federal government recouped illegal debts for five years. It's Thursday, the 16th of March. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. So, Luke, we now know that the robo-debt scheme was unlawful from the very beginning and that the public service had actually advised that it could be illegal way back in 2014 when the idea was first thought up. So how did this become a government policy? This was something that was dreamed up by public servants in the Department of Human Services, which is a federal government department, and it works with another department, uh, the Department of Social Services. So Human Services runs Centrelink and Social Services runs like law for social security. And at this time, there was a lot of uh, pressure to come up with budget savings. And one of the ideas that Human Services had was potentially to save about a billion dollars on this idea that welfare recipients probably owed a lot of money to the government. And to get this money back, they'd use this method called income averaging. And that is essentially something that became known as robo-debt. So human services goes to social services for approval on this idea, and they're told it would be unlawful. Usually that would mean that an idea like this would be dead on arrival. Mm. So what was different about this proposal? Why was it allowed to go ahead? A few things. Firstly, I think the Royal Commission's heard quite a lot of evidence about a fairly toxic culture in uh, the Department of Human Services. And it seems from the hearings that another potential 
issue was the fact that Scott Morrison had become the social services minister in late 2014 and the Abbott government had just had its 2014 budget, which had been a real political flop, um, but it was still intent on um, what it described as budget repair, austerity basically. And after he Morrison was appointed, he did a range of media interviews where he described wanting to be a tough welfare cop on the beat. It's important that we have a strong cop on the beat when it comes to welfare because it's taxpayers' money that's at stake. And it's been suggested that that rhetoric was influential in encouraging the department and bureaucrats to bring forward this proposal. And the DHS plan would have saved about $1.2 billion. At this stage, did Morrison know that the department advised that this policy proposal could be unlawful? He wasn't told in explicit terms that it could be unlawful. So Morrison first gets a brief in February of 2015 uh, where he's told about this robo-debt idea amongst a bunch of other welfare compliance measures. And he, he marks the brief as one for his department to pursue because the brief says that there would be legislation that would be required in order to implement this thing. And so the two departments, social services and human services, would have to get together and work out how to, to make this happen. From here, it's fairly significant Uh, event is that the policy proposal that they are working on at Morrison's request is essentially changed and so it removes the term income averaging from the proposal and it also has a clear statement that the way that they're going to use this program won't change the way debts are calculated and that's crucial because that is the thing that the Department of Social Services said was unlawful. And so if it was no longer in the brief, then it gives it the green light to suggest that legislation is not needed. Of course, the problem is that uh, even though the words weren't there, that's exactly what they did. Um, They used income averaging. Um, And income averaging is basically this idea where you take someone's annual income reported to the tax office and compare it to what they, the person told Centrelink, they earned every fortnight. Therefore, you'll have an average and it won't speak to what someone actually earned in a particular fortnight. And the consequence of that is you have hundreds of thousands of people uh, issued uh, debts that um, they didn't owe and that were unlawful. And so now when the submission is prepared to go to to Cabinet, you have a checklist box which says no legislation is required. And that is basically the green light from the bureaucracy, which then goes to Morrison and to Cabinet. Um, The Commissioner, Catherine Holmes, pressed him on that question. Okay, but you have a minute that says legislative change is required and it's your own department that's saying that. Then you get a new policy proposal that says legislative change is not required. Why don't you ask your own department? Because I didn't see it as necessary because they they had affirmed it so strongly and that I had great faith in the department to work through the matters that they were working through. And that was not uncommon, Commissioner. So, Luke, Scott Morrison says that he doesn't see any issues with the policy, that the department has worked through all of the initial issues that it had with it. But as you mentioned, the Department of Social Services had actually flagged that robo-debt could be unlawful right back in 2014, when the Department of Human Services first brought the idea to them. So how did these departments resolve that? There are two theories about what happens from this point. 
one theory that we've heard is that um, the human services essentially deceived social services about how the plan would work in practice. So the idea of income averaging, we're told that a senior person in human services told their counterpart in social services, okay, we won't use income averaging anymore. Actually, the way that robo-debt will work won't change how we raise debts. The other theory is that the two departments essentially colluded, and that's a quote from the commissioner, and the commissioner, Catherine Holmes, put their theories of deception or collusion to um, Scott Britton, a former national manager of compliance risk at the Department of Human Services in the hearing. So those are two possibilities. One is that you collude with DSS to remove the reference. The other is that you deceive DSS by removing the reference. I think, Commissioner, to be honest, like what you're suggesting, both of those scenarios are deception. I've never been part of deception in my whole career. That's not who I am and it's not what I represent. But the Commissioner presses him saying that this is out of the new policy proposal or NPP and that matters because this is essentially the proposal that will be considered by Cabinet. Well, good, but this comes right out of the uh, NPP and it's deceiving in its effect because it would lead the casual observer, well, a casual observer would have no idea averaging was part of this. I, I agree with that final point, Commissioner. So either way, that's essentially how this policy was able to go from the public service through Cabinet without challenge or questions and essentially misleads ministers about how the program is going to work and later was launched in July 2015 and fully rolled out in September 2016. Okay, Luke, once the scheme was in place, how did it actually work for people receiving social security payments? So once the scheme's in place, it fundamentally changes how people who um, deal with the welfare system have to report or answer to the government rather than the government doing an investigation to figure out whether or not somebody might have been overpaid welfare payments, the government started accusing people of owing money and then saying to them, well, please find the evidence that tells us that you actually don't. So this reversal of the onus of proof started causing incredible anguish and, and pain to people and, in, in, you know, some people to say it, uh, you know, it's been the worst moment of their lives. There have been uh, reported instances uh, where people have taken their lives. We, we know of two uh, where uh, mothers appeared at the Royal Commission to talk about that. Ms Miller, can you tell the Commission your full name, please? Jennifer Joy Miller. And one of the people who talked to the Commission um, was a, a woman called Jennifer Miller, uh, whose son, Reese Corzo, uh, took his own life in uh, January of 2017 uh, he was facing uh, unlawful debts worth $17,000. Uh, Reese had pre-existing mental health conditions, um, but there was no uh, vulnerability indicator on his Centrelink file, and that, if that was in place, it could have prevented him from getting those debts. And the commission heard that after Reese died... The first 24 hours was fairly hazy. Um, I obviously needed to make arrangements... Um, and I went to the property where he was living. Uh, his mother found a handwritten note that made reference to suicide. And then on the fridge, I found the um, debt letters and um, a picture of Reese with a gun to his head. Um, when I saw that, 
I knew that something wasn't right. What type of drawing was it? Um, it was a face with a gun through there and dollar signs just coming out of his head. And it had debt life written on it, I think. Uh, and those were pinned with um, some debt notices from a private collection agency uh, as well. Reese's mother was scathing of the way that the government had uh, stonewalled her when she sought answers about what had happened to her son and essentially said that um, over many years all she was given were, quote, platitudes and false words. And it all became very sly and very, just everyone was lying and covering each other's backs. Yeah, I remember around that time, Luke, there were a number of people who went to the media with similar personal stories of how the robo-debt scheme affected them. So a lot of this actually occurred on on Twitter, um, but also Victoria Legal Aid and other legal groups put forward the suggestion that robo-debt actually might be unlawful. Mm. And Alan Tudge subsequently paused the whole system in, in January 17, a decision which was not actually announced Um, at the time, but we've subsequently heard at the Royal Commission. But I guess amid all of that, it appeared that Tudge still viewed this as a a media problem uh, rather than perhaps a legal problem. And his former media advisor, Rochelle Miller, told the Royal Commission Tudge had uh, told her to, quote, shut down the media storm. Uh, He was very firm with me that I needed to shut this story down. And so she devised a strategy to place stories in in friendly media, including the Murdoch Press. And that involved, you know, placing stories with the, um, you know, the more friendly media, the right-wing media, about how the coalition was actually catching people who were cheating the welfare system. And that media, including the likes of A Current Affair or um, others, has a lot more reach. Uh, the, The commercial television programs... Uh, the you you know, 2GB, radio, that type of thing, has a lot more reach. So actually the message that was getting to people on the ground was that the coalition is cracking down on welfare cheats. She also confirmed the office leaked the personal details of victims of the scheme who were critical of Centrelink, saying Tudge was adamant that if stories reported by the media were incorrect, then we should, quote, correct the record. There was a lot of misinformation which had been placed out of the media during the previous few weeks. And certainly I was keen to correct some of that misinformation. Rochelle Miller was asked about this at the Royal Commission by Senior Counsel Assisting Justin Gregory. Did you notice any impact of the decision to release personal information into the media um, upon the nature of media stories from that point? Yes. And what was the impact you observed? Well, there were less people speaking out in the media, which was the intention. Miller said she was aware of media reports that connected the robodebt scheme to the suicide of debt recipients. What about the sheer impact on someone who's not expecting to be contacted about five years ago's debts and somebody who's vulnerable? Was that given any thought? Uh, it wasn't. It wasn't. It, it was, and as I think I said in my statement, there was a distinct lack of empathy, and that that thinking around that that thinking that 
putting yourself in in a person's shoes. And I think it um, highlights the lengths that the government went to to defend this program, um, and that's been a theme of the Royal Commission, where ministers and public servants have not listened to the criticism that's come at the scheme and at them and instead have done all that they could to defend it, including through attempts to discredit those who were questioning what they were doing. Next, how the robo-debt scheme finally came undone. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Okay, Luke, what about workers within Centrelink, the people who are actually dealing directly with welfare recipients affected by robo-debt? What did they make of this scheme? We've heard from some at the Royal Commission, um, and they have been um, very critical of um, not just the policy and the practicalities of the policy and the potential problems, but also, I guess, the ethics of what they were made to do. And many felt really compromised. Um, some left their jobs as a result. There was a person uh, who presented at the commission, Jeannie Marie Blake, who was really emotional about the effect the scheme had. I can't forget, and I know there are many more staff just like me who can't forget what happened and what we were forced to deliver to customers. And for every customer that's had to listen to that, I wanted to say, I do remember. I remember. There's another Centrelink worker, Colleen Taylor, who she was deeply affected. Um, she ended up leaving her role at Centrelink because she felt so compromised by what she's doing. I actually spoke to Colleen Taylor before she gave evidence at the Royal Commission and she talked about taking her concerns all the way to the top of Centrelink. She is a frontline person um, and she, she raised her concerns about the fact that they knew that they were issuing debts that were wrong right to her boss, um, and she even described it in her correspondence with the senior officials at Centrelink or Human Services as stealing. You know there's no debt and you're sending out a debt notice expecting them to pay that back. How is that not stealing? And particularly as we were a compliance unit. The whole point of our unit was to make sure that people were doing the right thing and here we were doing the wrong thing. But in the end, 
her warnings and concerns were um, were dismissed. She had meetings with officials, but they kind of fobbed her off, really. Well, after me going on and on and on, um, at the end, uh, she said, well, that's good. Um, so what you're saying is the old system used to be very time-consuming and lengthy, and this is going to be much quicker. And I, my jaw just dropped and I thought, what? I was really down about it, yeah. And they sort of suggested that she didn't have an understanding of the system uh, or that she was too sympathetic to, to the people um, engaging with Centrelink. Mm. Um, of course, it turned out that she was right and, and they were wrong. So not only have public servants at this stage flagged that the scheme could potentially be unlawful. You also now have frontline Centrelink workers saying that it's unethical. Hearing all of this, it strikes me that there were so many missed opportunities to weigh up the potential harm this scheme was causing and its possible illegality and end it much sooner than it was actually ended. Now, having listened to all of this evidence before the Royal Commission, Luke, why do you think this didn't happen sooner? I guess there are two fairly important factors. One is the the significance of the budget savings that um, this proposal was um, supposed to uh, reap. Of course, in the end, it, it didn't uh, reap any of those savings. But um, remembering the context, this is a time when the coalition is desperate to record a, a budget surplus. Um, the fact that there were billions of dollars worth of savings and the, the, the program was ramped up um, at successive points in, in the, its existence, there was definitely an attachment to those budget savings and shutting down the program would have ended that. I guess the other thing is, is, a, is a broader question about how society uh, treats people who uh, receive welfare benefits and how their, the concerns and criticism of policies that demonise those people, I guess, are treated by uh, politics broadly and the media. Um, but we were getting feedback from the Prime Minister's office that actually this was playing quite well in, in you know, marginal seats, Western Sydney, that type of thing. Which was playing quite well? Well, the, the narrative of um, that robo-debt was actually playing quite well in terms of people actually supported it and were supportive of the notion of the government cracking down on anybody who was cheating the welfare system. And so really the only reason the scheme, well, the key reason the government took the decision to stop the scheme mm. was because the courts and the legal system required it to. It wasn't because it was unethical or immoral or wrong in some way. So that's the other reason, I think. Mm. I mean, we know that in the three months after the scheme was launched, the Commonwealth Ombudsman actually received almost double the complaints it normally would about Social Security. And their response to that was to launch their own investigation into RoboDebt in 2017, when this was all taking off. What did that investigation find? Yeah, so that uh, investigation was launched early in, in 2017, uh, headed by a person called Louise McLeod, who was the uh, Senior Assistant Ombudsman. McLeod gave evidence that people in that office believed that the scheme was legally questionable and they had actually drafted a, a version of the report that included really strong criticisms, um, raised questions about legality and income averaging specifically. 
But what we learnt from the Royal Commission was that the Department of Human Services hadn't really participated in that investigation in good faith. Um, They didn't provide all the information, particularly around legality, that was requested by McLeod and her team of investigators. Take a seat, Ms McLeod. Um, Ms McLeod, will you please uh, inform the Commission your full name? Louise Elizabeth McLeod. So McLeod... um, fronted up at the Royal Commission to give evidence about her report and she was kind of shown a series of documents that might have changed how the public was informed about robo-debt, but those documents were never provided to the Ombudsman. Mm. We were told by DHS that they hadn't done... They didn't have that information? They didn't have that information. And that really shocked her. And I guess the, the, the big one was a document which showed a huge proportion of debts raised using this income averaging method. Well, 76%, it it confirms that it was very much the default. Um, Yeah. Were you personally told by someone at DHS they didn't have that information? There was... Sorry, give me a minute. You need a minute. It's obviously quite upsetting for you. We can break for five minutes if you would like that. Okay. Another factor was, I guess, this belief in human services that they were being given the chance to to weigh in on the draft ombudsman's report. I mean, that is something that happens often. The ombudsman's provide a a version for comment. Um, But the, the view in human services was that they really had an opportunity to try and influence what it said, partly because the program was so complicated that the ombudsman had to take its word for some aspects of it. Mm. Um, So in the end, the ombudsman's report comes out in April 2017 um, and it doesn't have those concerns that Louise McLeod wanted, uh, particularly around legality and accuracy of debts. Look, you obviously have an emotional response to finding out a lot of stuff now. Do you want to um, say anything about that or explain why that is or would you prefer not to talk about it? I suppose because I feel like a failure. You don't have to do this if you don't want to. I didn't mean to upset you all over again. (laughs) Okay. Why do you, sorry, I will ask you this, why should you feel like a failure when clearly you raised a lot of important issues that just weren't taken up? Because I couldn't convince others. And we've heard the main reason for that is because the acting ombudsman, Richard Glenn, took a different view about the ombudsman's role and whether or not it had the evidence it required to make such a strong statement. Um, And so in the end, rather than call out this scheme and possibly act as a turning point in this whole timeline, the the ombudsman's report was just used by the government as a a shield to defend itself from criticism. Hmm. So, Luke, eventually the concerns about robo-debt became too hard to ignore and the then-Morrison government finally ended the scheme in 2019 after five years. Stuart Robert was government services minister at that time. What was his role in this decision? 
So Stuart Robert was the government services minister when the um, government started facing legal challenges to the scheme. And what that meant is that the government had to get proper legal advice from the Solicitor General about uh, whether or not RoboDebt was was legal or not. Stuart Roberts says that around the middle of 2019, he started having serious misgivings about the scheme. I had a massive personal misgiving, yes, but I'm still a cabinet minister. Yeah, but it doesn't compel you to say things that you don't believe to be true, surely. It's one thing to stick to the policy and say this is how we do it and we're confident in the program, but to actually give statistics which you couldn't have believed to be accurate is another thing, isn't it? They were the numbers from the department based on the working approach to how the, the program was being run. They were the accepted figures by government to use. Mm. And as a dutiful cabinet minister, ma'am, that's what we do. Misrepresent things to the Australian public. Uh, I wouldn't respectfully put it that way. And he also says that he wasn't told about some of the legal advice that had been obtained and was being considered by his department. The other side to that story is that the public service say that he was told, um, particularly in in a key meeting in in July, and that Stuart Roberts' position was basically that legal advice is just legal advice or an opinion is just an opinion. Mm. Um, That's something that Stuart Roberts denied at the commission. He says that he was the one that sought the Solicitor General's advice because of those concerns he had. But he does accept that he made false statements about defending robo-debt um, because he wanted to be loyal uh, to Cabinet and he felt he couldn't contradict government policy. I suggest to you, based on your state of mind that you assert you had on the 4th of July 2019, that was untrue. Well, we now know the basis of raising debts as yes. See, or the Solicitor General has informed us is incorrect. So, yes, that statement is untrue. So, Luke, you've covered RoboDebt for years now and you've also watched this Royal Commission into RoboDebt for the last five months. What should we take away from all of this? I think one of the striking things watching the Commission is that ultimately RoboDebt was stopped because it was unlawful, not because it was unfair, not because of all the awful effects it had on hundreds of thousands of people. I mean, the scheme, people said that the scheme ruined their lives. There were awful mental health impacts. Um, So many of the victims who appeared at the inquiry said they would never use social security benefits ever again, which is, is really quite shocking. And if we think about how this could happen again, my thinking is that, you know, the next robo debt probably won't be unlawful. So the courts won't be able to stop it. So the government should also consider what impact those policies are having on on people. You know, when it goes for a welfare crackdown and it's being told that that policy is uh, having an awful effect on people's lives, that should really be a cause um, to stop and think. And that's not what happened in this case. So the lesson for the future should be to, to listen to what people who are affected are actually saying. If this episode raised any concerns for you, please call Lifeline on 13 11 14. It's available 24 hours a day. 
And thanks to Social Affairs and Inequality Editor Luke Henriquez-Gomes. You can find all of Luke's reporting on the RoboDebt Royal Commission over the last five months at theguardian.com, including a great feature article that ties together all the evidence in detail. It's called RoboDebt, Five Years of Lies, Mistakes and Failures that Caused a $1.8 Billion Scandal. We'll post a link to that article on the Full Story website. This episode was produced by Karishma Luthria, Alison Chan and myself. Additional production by Miles Herbert and Joe Koning. Our theme music was also by Joe Koning. Sound design and mixing by Camilla Hannon. The executive producers for this episode were Gabrielle Jackson and Miles Martignoni. I'm Jane Lee. Catch you next time. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.